0: Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we'll be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest, has studied hundreds of companies over nearly 50 years, authoring numerous books and articles on leadership and entrepreneurism. He has developed proven frameworks that can drive incredible success for teams and businesses. He is a Baker Foundation Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. I'm thrilled to welcome Bill Solomon. Bill, welcome. It's so good to uh, be with you today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me looking forward to this. Me too. I've been really looking forward to uh, being able to talk to you a little bit. Let's start, Bill. I know you've been at Harvard since 1980, prominent professor of business there. You've had a very distinguished career in investing in and directing companies. And I definitely want to get into all of that and the lessons you've learned. Before we do, tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got to where you are and some of the things that have been important in your life. Well, for many people, to describe their journey would take a
1: long time. In my case, it's quite short. I grew up in Florida. Like many people, I had a teacher who had a big impact on me, and he wanted me to go to Princeton, and so I went to Princeton. I also wanted to go to Princeton, so it was useful to have that alignment of interest. I had a professor at Princeton who had gone to Harvard Business School. I didn't know what that was, but I basically wanted to be him. That's where I went in 1973, so I've actually been there 47 years. Now, I've done lots of other things, but I've never left Harvard Business School. I've always been a student there or worked for the business school.
0: So you've had a couple of people who've influenced you greatly, a teacher who ultimately inspired you around Princeton. You were aligned around that, as well as another professor who had inspired you around Harvard what was it that you were hoping to do when you were thinking about making those decisions? What was it that you inspired to do or to be in going in that direction?
1: One of the things I have learned over the years is that I have shared responsibility with my students for learning. It's not me transferring knowledge to them. And I think in both these cases, the teachers had that perspective. They wanted us to learn, to want to learn, to give us opportunities to make low-risk mistakes, if you will, in class or discover that we didn't have a great perspective or the answer. And indeed, I think in most cases, teachers who have that impact on you actually ask the best questions, and the questions are what sticks with
0: you. So as you think about some of the questions you've asked students, you've taught thousands of students, I think over 10,000 students in one particular program. What are some of the things you've hoped that those students would take away? If you asked them years after, what did you take away from Professor Selman's class? What would you have hoped that they would say? What are some of the questions that you might have asked them? When I first started teaching,
1: I taught finance. So think cash flows, discount rates, value, all that kind of stuff. I eventually settled on teaching a new course called entrepreneurial finance, which was about how entrepreneurs identify opportunities, how they get resources that might be people, it might be money, it might be customers or suppliers. And then the process by which they run tests or experiments, get information, adapt what they're doing, decide to do something completely different go out of business or step on the gas. So I had to write a whole series of cases for that course for which I was solely responsible. And the thing I had to do one step ahead of the students was to come up with a framework, some way to organize each case, to organize each discussion. And so I have a very, very simple framework, which is I think there are four elements of any venture, The people, that's not just the founder, but the teams, and not just the people inside the company, but might include the board or investors or key customers, whatever. The opportunity, what are people proposing to do? What's their strategy? What's their competitive advantage? What's their business model? The context, which I would describe as the set of factors that are outside of your control. Could be the stock market regulations, whatever. And then the deal. And by deal, I mean, what binds people to a company or what are you offering customers? What's the deal you have with your investors? So there are four elements, people, opportunity, context, and deal. And you could evaluate each separately. What have these people done? Where do they go to school? Whatever. Or is this a great idea, seems to be compelling with customers, but what I discovered was that you really had to understand how the people fit with the opportunity. How did the deal, the structuring of financing or incentives, who was attracted to your company, how did that all fit to mutually reinforce the possibility of success? And then I learned to ask three questions. What can go wrong? You can't believe how good people are at coming up with what can go wrong. What can go right? Again, this is a critical aspect of all thinking, which is the success stories we hear about are because something went right and they didn't have the things that inevitably went wrong, put them out of business. So what can go right? What can go wrong? And then how do you make it more likely that you'll succeed? What steps could you do if you hire someone who's a world expert in engineering? Or if you hire someone who knows the customer extraordinarily well? Or you have a trusted manufacturing partner? Whatever it might be. Those are things you can do to increase the likelihood of success. That was what I did. I created the framework. I've now done 220 or 230 case studies. They always talk about all of those elements. Every discussion is framed the same way. So if you ask any of my students over a 40 year teaching career, 35 years of doing this, they'll say people opportunity, context deal, what can go right, what can go wrong? How can I tilt the risk reward ratio in my favor? And then they'll also repeat the four rules of cash. You know, I have a PhD in finance and all I've tried to do over time is simplify things. So here are the four rules. More cash is preferred to less cash. Less risky cash is preferred to riskier cash. Cash sooner is preferred to cash later and don't run out of cash. Those are the four rules. What I've discovered is you want people to have a framework that they can apply to the idiosyncratic things they see in their lives if you can organize your thoughts in a, that kind of way that I, I find it helpful.
0: This is terrific. So we've got the four elements of venture, the three questions, the four rules of cash, and these have application clearly in business. You can ask the three questions for a whole range of things. I mean, it's really a problem-solving methodology. Absolutely. You can do it in government. If
1: I were talking about something like how to accelerate the discovery and delivery of vaccines, I would want to have the people who knew the most about that. I'd want to have set up systems in which I could accelerate conditional on success. So for example, if people went to Moderna and said, we're going to give you money to produce all this vaccine that may not work. But by the way, the consequences of it working are so profound that the money we advance you to make enough of it to have an impact with 330 million people, that's a way to increase the likelihood of success. So you can apply the framework almost anywhere, I think, to good effect.
0: Well, it would seem like you could. Our listeners are people at different stages of their career who are trying to get to the next level, trying to have a breakthrough and so forth. And it would seem like even just applying some of these questions to a current situation, something we're trying to do something we're trying to do in work. You know, what could go wrong? What could go right? What can we do to make it more likely to succeed? That's a great framework for analyzing a whole range of things. So thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. We have a CFO at Dale Carnegie who talks about cash is king. There are no queens, especially... <laughs> especially in the in this day and age with all that's happening in a COVID economic environment. I know he's going to love hearing these four things that you've got here as well. You've done 230 case studies. I mean, so this is not something that is just a new idea. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen maybe one of those case studies where you'd say, this is a good example of the application of some of these ideas, and here's what happened
1: you know, it's like investments. Investments are like children. You love all your children. You love all your investments until (laughs) life unfolds. So, and you still love your children, but not your investments. So, you know, one of my favorite examples is a fellow named John Osher. John went to college on the extended plan, I would say. It took him a while to get through college. He then drove a taxi. He ended up learning some skills as a plumber, an electrician, a whole bunch of things, he observed during the energy crisis back in the 70s that people needed to save energy. And he developed and figured out how to manufacture a set of things that would decrease the amount of water you used in your shower, for example. And he did that. And then the oil crisis went away and the demand for his products went to zero. So he retooled and he started the toy company. And to make a long story short, he came up with some clever ideas. He came up with the idea of a rainbow toy bar where things would dangle off it. And then he sold that company and then he got bored and he went back in the toy business and he had some great success. And then somebody came to him with an idea, which he transformed into the following, which is a battery operated lollipop. Now, Joe, what I want you to think about is the American people who need an engine and a battery to turn the lollipop in their (laughs) mouth. And he sold these for $3 at retail and he sold a hundred million of these. And then he sold the company and he started a new company and he got the same team together. So think of same team three times. And he went to Walmart and he said, what could we do where we could produce a great product where customers don't buy the current product because it's too expensive and too complicated? So to make a long story short, he ends up developing something called the Spin Brush. It's a battery-operated toothbrush. John had figured out everything there was to know about how he could get that into mass distribution at a low price. And he had a set of criteria for doing this. So he ended up saying it had to sell for under $5 at retail at Walmart. We have to make money, his company. Walmart has to make money, good money, better than they might make per square inch per unit of time in someplace else. And the manufacturer has to make money. Every part of the value chain willingly participates And to make a long story short, he sold the company for $475 million in cash to Procter & Gamble. And at the peak, Procter & Gamble was producing 425,000 Crest spin brushes per day. It's a great outcome, but it's sort of more interesting. When he sold the company, he only had nine employees. Well, how could you do that with nine employees? Well because he'd figured out how to drop ship to mass retailers who made more money on his spin brush as an impulse item than any other thing in the store. So they were all happy to do it. And he just had learned from past successes and failures how to create what he called the perfect company. And so when I do a story, when I do a case, it's all intended to have those elements. What were the unique aspects? What are things that you could apply tomorrow? One lesson for the students, go to Walmart and walk up and down the aisles. And if you see an electric toothbrush that costs 80 bucks, and most people wouldn't buy it because it's too expensive, but you see a manual toothbrush at four bucks, And you can create a toothbrush that's battery operated that's much better than manual, but the price gap is enormous. That's called an opportunity. And then you set about trying to figure out if you can manufacture it, if it's durable, if it's waterproof, it's all those things. You want people to take a framework or set of ideas and then be able to go in the current environment and find the thing that works for them or might work. And then go through the same process of building a great team, getting the right amount of money, the right partners and like. You know, over time, having written cases on Amazon in the early days and having had Jeff Bezos come to class or lots of people who've done pretty extraordinary things. The idea is not to focus on exactly what they did at a moment in time and celebrate their success. That's all great. It's just what you learn from this story. How does it affect you? What could you do differently? What will you do differently?
0: So that's been the process of identifying and structuring cases. That's really ultimately the point of this, right, is so what can we learn? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's one particular example of a person who could be a role model in some sense about in what ways could someone else go out and be entrepreneurial themselves. I would imagine that one of the core competencies of a good entrepreneur is someone who really is an adaptive learner, someone who's really willing to try things, things work, things don't work, they learn, they keep moving. Because you have studied entrepreneurship so much, what are some of the characteristics you'd say are the most important for someone to be a successful entrepreneur? First of all, people often had this view that
1: entrepreneurs are risk takers. So I would say I don't know many successful risk takers. I don't get up in the morning and say, where can I find risk? It's possible that being oriented towards finding reward and then managing the risk is a better way to think about it. I also know lots of people who are not particularly innovative. Almost everything that exists today has existed in some form before. You know, the Rothschilds would get carrier pigeons to bring news of the war back from the Napoleonic Wars. And I call that the first internest. So we've had communications back and forth forever. Entrepreneurship is not about predicting. It's about evolving into something. There's a great book, Harold and the Purple Crayon, where Harold draws the adventures he wants to be in. So entrepreneurs have to be willing to adapt to good and bad news, to constantly try to work with customers. Again, the other recurring lesson across everything I've ever seen is a preoccupation with customers, not what's good for you, but what's good for customers, just turns out to be a compelling motivation. Jeff Bezos has the most incredibly simple operating system at Amazon. He has three questions. Does it increase customer choice? Does it decrease price? And does it get the product to the customer faster? And honestly, every single decision inside Amazon is made by first looking at the principles and then trying to figure out if what you're proposing to do fits and then running experiments. And if they don't work, change them or
0: abandon. That's the model. And it's clearly been an incredibly successful model for him. And at the same time, that first question is so important. I think some people have this vision of entrepreneurs as they've got this idea. What you've just right. basically said is you may have an idea and the question is the degree to which that is really impactful to the customer and the willingness to pivot and to be open to change, ultimately to make sure that we're increasing customer satisfaction and decreasing costs and getting it to the customer faster, and more effectively.
1: So there's a great story of Jonathan Bush and Todd Park, who got together to start a birthing center in San Diego. This is quite a long time ago now. They were running the birthing center and they were delivering outstanding service and everything was fine, except they couldn't get paid and they couldn't manage the office. So I think it was Todd Park's brother who wrote software to enable them to run the office. And that company today is called Athena Health and basically manages all the doctor's offices across the country. So you take an idea, a birthing center, and then you discover there's some other thing inside. And then you say, well, what would other people be willing to buy this software and use it? And how could we improve it? All born of an experience that ultimately
0: wasn't a successful business. So it's interesting just even hearing that example about how that business came about. And certainly many people aspire to be entrepreneurs. They struggle with, well, what should my business be? And where do I get my idea? And so forth. What advice or insight might you have for someone who says, you know, I'd like to be able to do something. I'm not really sure even where to start. First of all, I'm of the view that
1: opportunities are absolutely everywhere. And often I try to pose a set of questions that are helpful in finding an opportunity. So an example would be, why does it cost so much? Why does it take so long? Could I cut out some element of the value chain, like bypass retail distribution, as Jeff Bezos did, and going direct from publishers to a wholesaler, no retailer, no inventory, no fancy locations, and then to the customer? I have a set of 10 or 15 questions that I find universally helpful for identifying ways in which you can create and capture customer value. Two women at Harvard Business School came up with the idea that maybe people would rent dresses online. So they ran a set of experiments. They actually got friends to lend them dresses. They bought some dresses. They got some undergraduates to come and ask them whether or not they would rent a dress. And it turned out they would. And then they did a whole series of things where ultimately Rent the Runway, the company, has had to morph and change. It became not just cocktail dresses for special occasions. It became everyday work clothes. It became accessories. Find something where you can turn a fixed cost buying a dress or a car or a house into a variable expense And that's how U-Haul works. That's how Airbnb works. That's how all these things work. They take something that's an asset-heavy decision, like buying your own dress and owning it, and turn it into something that's a rental stream. You can buy it by the unit or by usage. That has always been a source of value creation. At various points in time, the internet or other tools accelerate it, but it's always there and will remain for the rest of time one of the most valuable companies in the world today is salesforce i think the story of salesforce is important because it starts with oracle the big database company which sold very expensive software with a very high paid expensive salesforce and then that evolves where tom siebel goes and starts a company called siebel systems to do sales organization, sales management And then Mark Benioff leaves that whole group and he starts something where you don't have to buy the whole software program. You could use it on a usage basis. Instead of you installing it on your computer, he has it on his computers. And then he creates a platform for creating other businesses. So the amount of entrepreneurship that comes off salesforce.com is astonishing. So in each of these cases, you could say, Somebody's charging a high price for hard-to-change software. Somebody comes along, they have Amazon Web Services or Salesforce.com, and you don't have to buy the service. You don't have to buy the software. You get to use it. So these are universal characteristics of entrepreneurs, and you can look at the top 20 market cap tech companies, say, how did they do that? Apple ends up as an iPhone company. It started out as a personal computer company. They specifically in their original business plan said they thought there was no market for business computers. So they were in a deal with hobbyists and gamers. And then somebody invented VisiCalc, the first spreadsheet, and it only worked on the Apple. And then the thing exploded. So it became a massive market, but they had to get in the market in the first place and then discover that
0: just to summarize what you've said here is that some of these things aren't complex and yet there's a great art in taking things that are complex and making them simple. And it strikes me as what you've done with the frameworks and these questions. they are straightforward and at the same time you've synthesized them over a period of time. So these are terrific. One of the elements that you talked about that is required for the success of a venture, you talked about the people. And share with us a little bit the insights you've seen around the people side of things. This is an art, as we know, in Dale Carnegie, it's how do I interact with people effectively? How do we influence? How do we build trust relationship? What have you learned as it relates to the people side of things? Well, the first thing I've
1: learned is the cult of the individual is not only overrated, it's just dangerous. Teams do things, not individuals. Among the many examples I like to use, if you looked at Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, Wozniak is A technical genius. I think over a period of eight days, he created from scratch the first floppy disk drive for the Apple computer. He had done the motherboard. Jobs had the idea that he shouldn't give it away, that he should sell it. And Jobs went out and pre-sold some and did all this kind of stuff. Jobs went around to try to raise money. And he got the feedback, one, that he didn't seem like a very backable person I think I've said that carefully but one guy Don Valentine at Sequoia said, well I'm not going to put money in but you ought to go talk to this guy Mike Markla and Mike Markla was a retired Intel guy he's doing a little consulting and he's the best manager I've seen And Markla came and he both invested money and decided to get involved And then Apple which was now a team, Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs, Mike Markula, another guy named Mike Scott, they were able to go out and raise money from Arthur Rock and Ven Rock and other important investors. The combination of these great investors, plus this team that included Debbie Coleman, who became CFO, these were manufacturing people who really knew how to do everything that Wozniak didn't know how to do himself or Jobs didn't know how to do himself. It's the team that creates it. It's the entire process. It's raising money from the right people. It's positioning. It's marketing. They use Regis McKenna as their uh, PR group. That turned out to be the greatest thing you could possibly have done at the time the birth of the personal computer industry. So to me, it's all about finding inside and outside a company, the team that has the highest likelihood of success or of learning from the mistakes that they make and being able to survive
0: and continue to adapt. Well, that's a really important story. It's certainly from the outside. A lot of people will talk about Steve Jobs. And what you're saying is that's part of it. And there was a much bigger part, and it really is about finding the right people and getting people working together, which is another challenge. You could have the best players in a basketball team or football team or whatever the case might be, but they don't necessarily work well together. Do you have any insights about that? Things you've seen that have enabled people to work together is galvanizing around a, a why or a common mission or purpose. What role does that play?
1: First of all, every story of every success has no single individual that we can associate with it. So Steve Jobs was a complicated human being. Everything in how to win friends and influence people are things he did not practice. (laughs) That man was tough. That man, you'd walk in with an idea and he'd say, that idea sucks. And then you'd run off and try to figure out some way to have it suck less the time you came in to see him again but he had other people who were really good at the thing they were doing. And it's the combination that ultimately leads to success. And I think if you pick up and really read the true histories of Facebook or Intel or any of these companies, you'll discover there were a set of critical people Some there by luck, some who may not have had the experience to be able to do the thing that they ultimately did, but just turned out to be terrific individually and as a team. By the way, when I say terrific as an individual, I may mean completely, totally, fatally flawed. There may have been really bad things that they didn't know how to do. I mean, I'm not talking about bad things in behavior, but just they had flat sides. And then you crafted something that got rid of the flat sides or used the flat sides as an advantage because people were so spectacular at one thing and so ungifted at something else. The Boston Celtics did not have the best talent, but they had the best team. They had John Havlicek or a Bill Russell. They had team players who would pass the ball, who weren't individual stars, and they beat everybody. I just think it's the ability to execute at a high level for a long period of time to survive and change and adapt. You know, Michael Dell transformed Dell now five or six times, but he had great people with him on the journey. So they went from manufacturing personal computers to build to suit. So you order, you pay, he builds, he ships it to you and then he pays his suppliers in 60 days. That made the business model of IBM PCs completely unsustainable because they had a very capital intensive process. So I think it's all about
0: teams and execution, learning, adapting. Well, great, this is great stuff, Bill. I mean, certainly so many insights in this uh, interview. Any other key things that you'd wanna share, final kind of thoughts or ideas for our listeners?
1: First of all, I think caring, empathy, just turns out to be the most critical thing. And early in my career, I had received an MBA, got a PhD, started teaching first-year finance, and I sort of went in thinking I knew more than the students knew, and if they said something that wasn't quite right, I should correct them, and I should prove how smart I am. So the first year, I got the lowest ratings of anyone teaching first-year finance. And the next year, I got lower ratings. And then I met a, a man, C. Roland Christensen, who taught me about trusting the students and having them learn rather than me teach and correct. And so this idea of transferring responsibility, of trusting people to accomplish things, is astonishingly powerful and I learned it by being not only not very good but aggressively
0: bad so what did you change about the way you were interacting with your students once you had that insight so I went from saying
1: effectively that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard to turning from Johnny to Susie and saying to Susie do you agree with that Is there another way of thinking about that problem? What are the logical consequences of going down that path? So I learned to ask questions rather than to make declarative statements. And in fact, it's so ingrained in me that when I go home at night and Carol says, how was your day? I say, well, how do you think it was? (laughs) A lesson I have learned is to not feel like you have to do everything we can't accomplish very much you can't accomplish very much at your organization if you do everything if you criticize the copy material or some aspect so you have to figure out a way to have people feel empowered to do that if everything you had in life was a positive experience you don't learn very much so not trying to keep people from failing, making sure they don't do harm. I got that. But they have to learn lessons. They have to acquire wisdom. There's a certain amount you can tell them or forewarn them about, but there's no way to
0: keep people from learning. That's a hugely valuable lesson. One of the things you and I were talking about before we started, I know you were reading How to Win Friends recently. And The framework that that book offers to do some of the things I think you just said, right? I mean, really to not criticize, condemn, or complain, but rather to ask even the question and to have the other person to listen and let the other person come up with the idea and so forth to empower and to deputize. It sounds like a lot of what you experienced over the years was really in line with the kinds of things you were reading about in How to Win Friends.
1: Let me make it very specific to the world today. I don't know about you, I read the paper, is the single most depressing thing I can do. Because everything is about being critical. Everything is about saying, you, the listener, it's not your fault, it's somebody else's fault. It's the Republicans' fault, it's the Democrats' fault, it's your neighbor's fault, it's this, it's that. So it creates a negative perspective on everything where no one says, well, time out. What would you do differently? it's like a vaccine distribution. Okay. What would I do differently? Well, I can tell you 35 things I would do differently. And then the thing that distinguishes folks like me, who I'd be building teams left, right, and center to try to fix things. So fix, not criticize, be skeptical, not cynical, be optimistic, not pessimistic. I think going back to what Dale Carnegie did, he created an operating system for life. I think we all ought to have some first principles. We all ought to have some questions we always ask. That's the way in which I try to organize what I do. I try to impart or co-learn with my students. And I think that's what
0: your organization was organized around. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for the insights that you've shared today. This has been tremendously valuable. I know that our listeners are really going to appreciate it. And certainly, I appreciate you being here today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.